Help support the Candid Frame in bringing you awesome conversations with great photographers. You can do this by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. That modest donation helps us to bring a quality show to you every week. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. A couple of months ago, I was in San Francisco, walking down Market Street. It was the late afternoon, and the light around me was just beautiful. I was eager to photograph with that amazing quality of light before it disappeared forever. I then saw a woman ahead of me, with a head of beautiful white hair with dyed blue tips. She turned slightly, and I saw that she was also wearing these amazing red sunglasses. There was no doubt now. This light and this woman had to be brought together for a photograph. I approached her, complimented her on her hair, making a mention that my own wife was allowing herself to go gray. I asked to make her photograph, which she graciously agreed to. I made my shot, I thanked her, and we parted ways. And when I posted the image the next day on Instagram, I thought that that would be the end of the story. But then somebody posted a message on that image and said, that's Jacqueline Walters. And I go, Jacqueline who? Well, in short order, I discovered that she was a photographer and quite the accomplished one at that. I went exploring, discovering her wonderful body of work that had been largely created on film, put through a little toy camera called the Holga. As you can imagine, I wanted to learn more about this woman, and this podcast provided me the perfect excuse to do just that and share it with you. But I, I really appreciate you sitting uh, uh, sitting down and talking with me. I just I just love how we met. I, yes. Without meeting at first, it was just really kind of funny. And for people who don't don't know the story, who don't follow me on Instagram, I was attending Street Photo SF, and I had a little time on my hands. And I'm walking down the street, and I see this beautiful quality of light off of Market Street, and I see this woman with this white hair with these blue streaks at the end, and I just go beautiful light <laughs> woman without hair and then I saw your sunglasses those red sunglasses and I was like I gotta make a photograph of her and you graciously agreed to allow me to make your portrait and then we sort of parted ways and I posted the image on Instagram the next day and then someone posted that's Jacqueline Walters <laughs> and I'm like who and I do a Google search and then I go oh my god she's another photographer <laughs> And quite a, quite a nice reputation following her. How do I not know about her? And uh, that's how we met. I think it's lovely. So thank you for, for, for posing for my photograph and for agreeing to talk to me on the show. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I don't agree to the photograph is when I'm talking to people. And it's it was just, for, for no, it's just because I'm a photographer who... Yeah doesn't like having the photo taken but everything was right and it would have been like in a nanosecond I was thinking it would have been mean-spirited of me not yeah. to let you take the photo and, I was, and I, from, from your reaction I'm sure I caught you completely off guard yes you know? <laughs> so that, that, that always helps <laughs> 
No, actually, what helped was that you're talking about your wife having salt and pepper hair. Oh yeah, uh, because it it then everything becomes framed differently, and that then I think fed in. Um, so your ability to talk to people <laughs> is what allowed yeah. me to say yes. <laughs> you know, when when, when I'm a, with a with a camera, I, I talk really well, and now with a microphone, I'm okay, but. Get me in a social gathering with people I don't know, and I just become an awkward puppy. It, uh-huh. really, it really takes quite a, a bit of concentration for me to just sort of relax and just okay and just chat. So, I have my I have my crutches. <laughs> the secrets. Yeah, but I was glad to get turned on to your work, and the more I found out about it, the more fascinating I be, I, I became. Uh, and, and reading, it was really interesting because one of the things that you talk about what led you to photography was was writing. Mm-hmm. Expat writers really the source of inspiration for you initially. Were you at first thinking of writing as a creative outlet and then that transitioned somehow into photography? It was, I wasn't creative creative writing major. It was just literature just literature Um, and just and it had a lot to do with the particular professors at university because I was a back-to-school student so a mature student Mm -hmm. (laughs) and what happened was that I naturally gravitated to people going elsewhere um, and it happened to be Paris of the 20s and 30s and there are photographers within that milieu Mm -hmm. and it was gradual because I was never somebody who had an interest in the camera it was more as if I backed into photography but I was told never to say that (laughs) 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 because it's it's almost dismissive I I think what happened was it's just you follow a path and you know one thing leads to another and it's typical of my what curiosity mm-hmm. so that's I don't know whether I've answered the question no. I tend I tend to go off in a circle to come back yeah that's perfectly fine this is podcasting so this is very <laughs> forgiving <laughs> so so it wasn't I mean it was English literature you know here I am in the US studying English literature as opposed to American literature and just one thing led to another and I perhaps originally I had thought that I would teach at university but the further I went the more I became disillusioned with the ivory tower all I can say is photography just happened the history of photography so I went from literature to the history of photography to gradually taking photographs was the attraction to the literature of the expats even though it was in the 20s was that somehow connected to your own experience of being from another country and now living in the United States was that part of the allure of those writers even though they were from a different period no I I think it had more to do with adventure 
Although nowadays, you know, Paris of the 20s and 30s would seem as if it belonged to an elite class mm -hmm. of people, which in truth, uh, you know, who could afford to go to Paris of the 20s and 30s. But I, can't, I thought about this a number of times because I live in a, I hate to use the word expat because it's a loaded term nowadays, mm -hmm. but... No, I think it had more to do with I liked the idea of, of exploration and dynamic people. There was mm, perhaps a romanticism of all these people going to Paris from various locations. I mean, Frida Kahlo and... So, you know, there were groups from Mexico that, um, or people from Mexico, I should say, that went there just from everywhere. People were drawn to Paris, so it, it was. I was just interested in the people. Um, I can't say I would be forcing it to say that I was thinking about how does this relate to me yeah. as somebody living in a foreign land. So you said that you were returning to school. What was your life before? What did you do for a, a, a living? Oh, working as, you know, an admin assistant. Um, I, in England at the time, I failed an exam at 11, at 11. Mm -hmm. And so it meant that, as far as I'm concerned, you know, you were then tracked. It was like you're being told you're, you're not good enough. Oh, yeah. So you're attracted to a particular type of school. Mm -hmm. When I came to this country, and also to back up a moment, at the time in England, which would have been the 60s, only a small percentage of people went to university. It was just the way that the system was. When I came here into the Bay Area, it was a highly educated population. And I was surprised at how people, if you didn't have a degree, which at the time I didn't, it was as if they just judged you differently. Hmm. You know, I was just working as doing admin assistant, just sort of going along. Right. You're, you're just making money and not thinking, I wasn't thinking about what I wanted to do. In fact, I often thought on my my headstone it would say you know she never realized what she wanted to do <laughs> or just still trying to figure it out right <laughs> so was was returning to school an exciting thing for you an awkward thing it was exciting i still didn't have a particular direction. I think what was stimulating at the time was just the, the intellectual process, the learning mm. process. But, uh, that was part of the problem. I realized that I'm interested in learning, or I, well, I still am, but I didn't have a clear idea of what I wanted to do. So when did that start crystallizing into doing something with with a camera? The late nineties. And how did you how did you discover it? And how did you think that oh maybe this is something I can I can express myself with? You know that I actually can't. I, 
I don't know what happened that suddenly I had, and I still don't think I was thinking in terms of expressing myself. Okay. I think it was something that just took hold of me. I was lucky enough once I I started to take a few photography classes and found them boring and would always, (laughs) (laughs) you know, leave the class but go to the darkroom. I would just go to book, go to the darkroom. And I was lucky enough to meet a group of people at UC, it was actually at UC Extension, who had been involved with um, a Puerto Rican photographer called Frank Espada. And he had moved out to the Bay Area and was teaching various classes and then private workshops. And so I started, it was after he left Extension, and I started to take, I learned to print from... Um, Frank, I took other seminars with him. There was just this, so a group of people, but somehow Frank was just this driving force that even though, because he was a documentary, social documentary photographer, but that wasn't my story to mm-hmm. tell. And I think what's interesting about photography is I just kept going kept going it's it was a compulsion oh yeah i'm very familiar with that <laughs> i've had it ever since i was 10 years old and i first picked oh up a gosh. camera so it's just like okay. for me it's just it's uh you know sometimes i, I wonder where the border lines on a psychosis but uh, <laughs> I, I welcome it I, I get so much joy out of it right um, right that it just i feel impelled to create an image as much as possible. If I mean, if that was literally all I ever did, I, I wouldn't mind it. So I right. completely understand that. Right. It seems that the, the Holga uh, played a pivotal role in you sort of developing, if not necessarily a voice, uh, a sensibility, a approach to right. how you wanted to create pictures. Tell me about the introduction of that camera and what it led you to create with it. So it was about 2004. You know, I had heard about the Holger and, in fact, somebody at the Harvey Milk Photo Center was telling me how you had to tape it up. And I was thinking, oh, this is, this is too much work. I can't go there. And it happened that I bought an entry-level Hasselblad. And then suddenly the film format was the same. I went, so that particular year, 2004, I I was back in England. I had both the Hasselblad and the Holger. And perhaps, I no, that year I didn't tape it up. And, but instead of using the Hasselblad, for whatever reason, I started to use the Holger. And while I hated the light leaks of the Holger, so I learned to tape up the camera. Mm-hmm. But so there's a Japanese photographer, Masahisa Fukasi. Yeah, yeah. So the Solitude of Ravens. Another person I was doing a mentorship with, Amy Potzig, she introduced me to this book, The Solitude of Ravens. And 
there was something about the tones. Mm -hmm. I've never worked out what it was because it's not the content, although I love the content. It, it was just a coming together of being introduced to a particular book. And when I made the first prints, it was, yes, th this, uh, and of course now I've thought about it a lot more, I suppose. It, it, it was just an instinct, okay, this is what I want to do. And part of it is that because I wear, it suits an, an artistic sensibility because I'm not interested in seeing every blade of grass I mean, it's just, in fact, once at a portfolio review, you know, I had, I didn't choose the person. He was a large format view camera person. He was saying, I want detail. Of course, I knew better than to argue. I just mm -hmm. thought it's a philosophical difference. I don't want details. <laughs> And it then took a lot of just going out and shooting and the, or though I shouldn't use that word nowadays, uh, making imagery. Um, and the first series that developed is it's all about the journey because it's, it's just those everyday things that, you you see, I mean, to use a phrase that's almost a cliche nowadays, the ordinary becoming the extraordinary. Mm -hmm. But I, I still believe actually in that, that phrase that it's these little details, as you were pointing out earlier, the light and learning. It's just you keep making the imagery. The, the your work and looking at your work and I actually did a one-on-one -on -one workshop with a student this week and it really it sort of it kind of was a synergy between how I was talking about how I was shooting and what you're talking about with your own process because one of the things we, I was discussing is that I came up shooting with chrome film Kodachrome uh -huh. 64, Kodachrome 200, right, which right. has, as beautiful as, as it is, it has a very limit, limited tonal range. And so I learned to see with uh, maybe three-stop tonal range, maybe four. <laughs> and then here I'm carrying a camera that is capable of 13, 14, 15. And one right. of the things I'm always having to contend with is that the camera is giving me more than I want oftentimes. So... What I'm always I'm trying to do is I'm trying to expose for the scene in the way that I intend for the photograph to look. And right. oftentimes I have to fight the camera because it's trying to give me so much more. Right, and I think right. a lot of what photography is, is some, for, uh, at least for some photographers, is that they discover that the camera is capable of giving them so much. And so they adapt how they shoot and how they see to what the camera can give them, which right. is can be a good thing, especially when it allows you to create images that were, you were unable to create maybe even 10 years before. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something to be said with having uh, an idea of what you want and having a camera that sort of, because of its own limitations, really f refines and and helps to guide your way of seeing that is, I hope, I hope I'm making sense. I think I'm meandering a little bit, but 
Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I wish you know what I was. No, because I think when I looked at, when I looked at the um, the book, The Solitude of Ravens, and I saw your work. I mean, both both of them are are imagery that really serve not only a certain aesthetic look in terms of tonally and the way you use you know uh, black, white, and gradations of gray, but it was so much about uh, evoking mood, evoking mm-hmm. a certain feeling, which has nothing to do with how sharp the lens is, right. what the quality of the bokeh is, whether or not you're getting what degree of vignetting. Right. And it, I find it really refreshing to see a work that is more about what the photographer is feeling at the moment that they're making the photograph rather than looking at the photograph simply as a compositional exercise. Right. So that's really long-winded. I don't have a proper question to it, <laughs> but I, but what do, you, what do you think of my assessment? Well, I I agree with it because I always felt in thinking back to like a, a, your the beginning photography class that I just would bail on or the intermediate class that I what I realize is for somebody like me, yes, you do need to understand the tools that you have, but in the beginning. I think it's important to work with just shooting and sort of backtracking perhaps to, oh, how could I make this more like I would like it to be, as opposed to, you know, yes, you need to understand F-stops and depths of Mm -hmm. field, but instructors can be too dogmatic well, at least in my, my, my view. Or they didn't suit the way I learn to, to be. Because that's what I felt is uh, let a student go out and shoot. I've used that, make images. And from that, you have something to talk about. I, I think the aesthetic, though, the mood... It, because I was, when I looked at my work recently, I then could see, you know, where I started, the images that nobody sees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And understanding that, yes, it's a process of you actually just have to make hundreds of images. It can't be that it needs to be more than, I suppose, the term is the lucky shot. But I, I never thought about the lucky shot. It was more I would just keep going out and making images. And I'm not somebody who has a camera with me all the time. Unlike, <laughs> unlike me, yes. <laughs> but tell me about those first series of images, because you went back home, you know, to England, and you made these these photographs out, and you, you got this, this fog and these trees and these animals, and I'm, I'm I'm wondering, as you started making those photographs, what was the allure of those particular locations? Why did you direct your camera to that as opposed to as you did later, uh, more urban environments. What was the allure of those locations initially? So what it sounds as if you're talking about is the, is the series that's called Poetics of the Landscape. Right. Mm-hmm. And that actually is all takes place in the Netherlands. 
Oh, okay. And, you know, initially I had thought about doing a comparison of partly, sorry to back up a moment, it's, I was looking, I didn't understand that I was a landscape photographer because I still (laughs) don't think of myself as a landscape photographer. I was interested in my own way of what the land, the connection to a land And I don't mean in a, you know, a political or a social way. It's that inner connection Mm -hmm. that one has to a particular landscape. And it just happened that I, I spent not extended periods, but I was in the Netherlands a lot. And I just had an attachment to this tiny country and its very flat landscape. Mm-hmm. But then what happened in the particular series you're referring to, I was fascinated by how just the elements change your perception of the land. And, you know, then it becomes very much about geometry. I, I love, this was shot over several years in late autumn, which is my favorite time of the year. The, the light is long. It's that Northern European light. It was just the magic of, it sounds so trite as I'm saying it now, but it's, it's the magic of looking at how a landscape is transformed. Yeah, being fascinated with looking how suddenly it takes on geometry, it reveals and conceals yeah. elements. I'm personally drawn to landscapes that reveal the unusual quality of, of places like that. As much as I like looking at some of the more iconic and traditional landscape mm-hmm. photographs that are out there, right, um, right, there's very little that surprises me mm-hmm. when I see a lot of those images, whether right. it's Yosemite or the Grand Canyon or Slot mm-hmm. Canyon or whatever that is. It's like right, I, right. I, I see enough of them, and then you may see some variations in terms of how different photographers choose to photograph it, but there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no big, oh, my God, I've never seen it in that way, right? But... Some of the landscapes that you've done and some other photographers have done, I'm always fascinated by people who are able to see a natural landscape and reveal what makes it special, at least to them, in that particular moment. So much of what I see in your photographs is how you use use light, but especially how you use a really strong graphic sensibility. Because I see line and shape and how that informs how you build the composition for me, that's really easy to discern in an urban environment because that's all I've ever been around. <laughs> right, so right. buildings, street corners, signage, the graphic, the natural graphic nature of those things mm-hmm. is obvious to me. And I use that as fodder for all the photographs that I make. It's not so easy for me to do it in a natural landscape, but I greatly appreciate when I see a photographer who's really adept at doing that. Was that something that you feel came naturally to you or did you have to really work at it to sort of be able to see a scene like that and to build a really strong graphic photograph? I would have to say if that it probably just came naturally. In fact, I don't like it when I look at a scene and I can, okay, you know, X, Y, and Z is in place. Let's make the the image. It's. I'd have to say I work on instinct, which of course, or intuition, what, which you could say. And I've often thought, well, that's based upon experience of 
what works. But realistically, um, I don't know where the sensibility came from, but because I don't think it was just looking at other photographers' work, mm-hmm. uh, although, you know, perhaps in you just, I tend to, what's that expression, be a sponge, I just absorb yeah. things. And so when I look at a scene, I have a feeling there's something here, and I then make the image. Oftentimes, especially with the Holger, I use Tri-X. I'm holding the camera. I'm doing all those things you're taught not to do of because <laughs> I, I might be holding the camera at arm's length because in the beginning of using the Holger, in the instructions, it would say, if you think you, you have the image, then step into it. But obviously, there are physical barriers sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned to I stretch out my arms, or I might have them above my head so that I'm getting a different angle in the moment that I'm there with the scene in front of me it's I don't have anything in my mind it's except there's something here that's interesting Um, I think what happens is you know any thinking or you know thoughts about what I like and whether it comes from you know looking at other photographers work or or poetry or you know literature music all those things I think factor in to I'm out there and there's, I mean, to see mist um, and water, <laughs> you know, that combination, there's got to be something there. Yes. So <laughs> do you find that the moment of discovery for you is when you actually see the negative and you make your initial print? Yes, because I actually make my own prints. I'm so I'm a what a hybrid of film to um, digital, mm-hmm. but coming from a darkroom background. So a lot of the aesthetic from the darkroom gets put in to the image I'm um, making in Photoshop. But it is to answer your question. It's at that point of it's not often that I shoot several frames but if I do you know the selection well you know the the process but it's working on the image and suddenly I am actually seeing the angles the geometry of the image and in my mind it's okay, this is what I need to do. Each image is special. I mean, actually, that's the takeaway for me is that I can never just, all images are not the same mm-hmm. when I work on the print. You know, there might be some basic things in the beginning, but each print has something which demands attention in a different area. It is that it's, it's at the stage of making the print Do you have different stages when you're printing? Do you sort of make an initial print, which is sort of like just a flat scan of the of the film, and then take a look at it and then sort of evaluate it, or do you so go through several different iterations of interpreting the the negative in Photoshop until you get to what you're going for? Usually, what I do after scanning is to 
there are a couple of very basic things that I do and then I make a little print. Actually, if you look behind me, you can see little prints which have become actually that it's a final version of which I'll make a larger print. Mm -hmm. But then I do, there are several versions of the print that I make until I get to that final version because it's, it's usually, for me, the difference between a good and a brilliant print mm -hmm. is actually just very small details. Yes, so there are, I mean, several versions until I get to the final version and then that's it. While listening to an episode of TCF, you may have had moments where you wish you had the opportunity to see the photographer at work, and even possibly have their feedback on your own photography. What would it mean to have insight and feedback from a photographer that inspired you to make photographs? That's the idea behind Philaborate, a new online photo education site that launches this weekend. It provides a unique opportunity not only to learn from great photographers like Peter Turnley, Amy Vitale, and Thomas Heaton, but also to interact with them during live webinars where they critique member images as well as reply to questions from the community. Each month, a documentary on a new master photographer will be released, where you get to see them at work discussing the thoughts and ideas behind their imagery. These are followed by photo critiques and live webinars where members from all over the world conduct an online salon with a photographer. Along with that, members have the chance to participate in monthly assignments and engage in the site's forums. I'm honored and excited to be one of the founding members of this service and invite you to check it out and become a member today. Find out more by visiting philaborate.com, spelled P-H-O, L-A-B-O-R-A-T-E dot com. Collaborate dot com. There's, there's another body of work that you have, um, which is here and everywhere. Which is oh, it's here city. and elsewhere. Here, here and elsewhere, which is a series of urban Im images that are multiple exposures that I'm assuming are done in camera. Mm -hmm. So there is another, yet another situation or you're making photographs where you really don't get to discover what you did until later. Right. Uh, it seems like you do not like to have definitive answers when you're <laughs> making the photographs. <laughs> well, it's not actually what I found of what since, not last year, the year, be the year before... 1816. So the end of 2016, um, I started to sometimes shoot with my iPhone. In fact, one series is with my iPhone. And what I found is that I still don't shoot a lot. And I very quickly edit because it's very clear what's mm -hmm. not working, but one informs the other. While it's true, especially with, I mean, as you were saying, with Here and Elsewhere and all my work, I like the surprise, but 
perhaps surprises are really based on experience. You know, after a while, you have an idea that what's going to work. But still, I, I like that, um, I suppose, excitement of not knowing. Um, but of late, what I've enjoyed is just shooting with the, I said I wouldn't use that term, but I, um, with, with the iPhone, because it informs, I mean, just my overall vision. Because what I found is I like the square format. I, ha I have, you know, there was one photography colleague would talk about, well, you know, every image has four corners, so what's the big deal? <laughs> but I think there's a certain bonding with, with the format. And interestingly, I like the square and then the very wide, not panoramic, but I don't know, 16 by 9. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was because, well, I guess I have an app on my iPhone where you can make those selections and also shoot in TIFF or RAW. So right. it, as I learned more and understood, I, I mean, it's still only a small file because it's only eight, what, eight bits as opposed eight megapixels to... megapixels or something like that, yeah. Uh, when I scan, it's always 16. I mean, the high, whatever's the highest quality. But I like the way that, yes, when I use one camera... There's the element of surprise. With the other, I can, there's the excitement of seeing the image. And oftentimes, if I'm traveling, then I use my iPhone and you know, things like Snapseed. And I refer to that as it's creating my vision of the world. Because re earlier in the year, I was in China and I took film, but also because it was a workshop and I wanted to share. Um, I was a student in, in the workshop. It was a workshop with Doug Beadsley. And in order to share work, I needed to then make it, some images on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what happened was I started to use the very wide, the 16 by 9, what was interesting, a lot of the, the images were on the bus. And mm. so clearly one set of principles of how I do things was informing the other. So that's why I always think digital and analog, they just inform each other, if mm. that makes sense. No, yeah, <laughs> no it does. It does, because both of them, both of them require different approaches. Yes. But it all ties back to the way you see. Right. You know, so it's, 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 it's just like, you know, when you go to the gym, you just don't do a singular exercise and expect right. your whole body is going to be responding <laughs> to it. You may have huge biceps, but your legs are still going to look like chicken wings. Right, right. So, yeah, I get that. But it was, I was surprised to see some color work on your site. That, <laughs> oh, is that a recent development, or have you been doing that so for a while? That's, uh, that was in... 2016 and some, I can't remember whether I have any from 2017, was I had never found the way of how I wanted 
to say something about England. You know, it, it's although I have a series that's called Remembrance of Things Past that's on my website, I was never particularly happy with it. So over the years, I would keep trying. And what happened was <laughs> that I was in 2016. November. I I don't want to bring politics into this, <laughs> <laughs> so you can make the connection. Okay. <laughs> um, I was so distressed that what happened was it's a feeling of in in order to counter outside um, what elements that are distressing, I needed to turn inward. And so what happened was I would take daily walks to calm myself down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the iPhone was the perfect tool. And part of what happened was in that instance, there was an image from a particular um, photographer, um, Shen Wei, W-E-I, last name, and of a a bush with magenta, I think magenta flowers on a black background. For some reason, the compositional element of that stayed in my mind. And as I was walking around with the iPhone, that and um, the, the photographer, sculptor, Andy Goldsworthy, who, you know, goes out, I think he's from Scotland, but he goes out into the natural world and makes sculpture or patterns in the landscape that then he photographs and of course then they disappear so with these two people in mind I was viewing the landscape very differently I suddenly the the trees with just a little bit of color mm -hmm. because the leaves were changing so rapidly I I paid attention I suppose what I'm trying to say is I paid attention in a different way and it evolved and it needed to be in color and it needed to be um, the iPhone was perfect. You know, I couldn't imagine if, you know, somebody might say, well, why didn't you take those images with a view camera? It's different. This was meant to be about, you know, the daily walk and what you're seeing and how quickly things change although that's not necessarily evident, I think, in the, the series. I was just, it's basically daily walks and looking at the color. I mean, really, but not just color as, you know, wow, wow, color. Yeah. It's just how it shapes. Yeah, yeah, because I, I completely got that, because when I looked at that those color images, they were completely in line with what you had done before, oh, because the you. photographs <laughs> were not about the color. Like, you see a lot of photographs where it's like, this image is about yellow, it's about right. green, it's about right. red. The color itself is the subject matter. But for you, especially with since some of the images were working with a fairly limited color gamut, or color range, or color yeah, yeah. Um, a limited range of colors. Um, they were just sort of subtle enhancements of mm -hmm. what you've already been doing with your, your black and white. So mm -hmm. it didn't seem like, oh, 
that you were off on some wild tangent. It seemed like really a natural progression. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's... And it's it's almost finished. It's it's still a work in, in progress, but always the problem is I naturally gravitate to black and white. Um, I'm trying to... Um, so often people will view my work as just being very classical as it, because of how I compose, how I view the world. And it's, I forgot, it's because suddenly there were some other things coming to mind in, in terms of work I'm working on at the moment. So I was pleased to do something in color because again, one informs the other. You can't, you know, I came back to black and white, looking at things a little differently and realized, you know, you can just move back and forth and one informs the other and takes you in different directions. Because in, in fact, there's some, it's not on my website yet, but some, I, have a pinhole camera that you could also do something called zone plate so you just move um, a, a slide it's, it's called a zero image camera and so if you use zone plate as opposed to just one particular hole with pinhole mm -hmm. zone plate is concentric circles that the light filters through and I went to China earlier in the year and I experimented a little but not much and but when I came back I'm starting to make imagery that in fact is reminding me of China uh, but but it's very ethereal and also wide I'm using 16.9 format for for that particular mm. oh actually this work over here would be an idea of of what I'm doing it's it's wide and again then there aren't going to be lots of details which of course I like yeah. tell me about your entree into into the fine art world you, you mentioned earlier about getting a critique from a photographer who didn't get your work but um, I'm wondering how you sort of access that that whole different aspect of photography was it through portf a portfolio review or something else that allowed you to start sharing your work out there well i think it's a it's a combination of things i'm fortunate enough that early on there's a gallery in san francisco cordon parts and 10 years ago or just about maybe it's nine they were starting a gallery and I was fortunate enough they had followed my work and wanted to show it um, at portfolio reviews I'm not my work doesn't have a wow factor in mm -hmm. for portfolio reviews because I mean, I can give a list of, you know, if you have this type of work, this type of work. And I don't mean that in a, you know, this is exciting work, but it's understanding that this is the work I do and I need to find the audience. Right. And I'm still trying to find the audience because my work doesn't have, 
it's beautiful work. It, it's not, um, you know, social commentary or documentary or so, and it's not platinum palladium. Yeah. It's so, it's just, you just have to keep, you keep putting yourself out there. Yeah, which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, us photographers have very soft egos, <laughs> you know? I mean, as much as we want people to look at our work and appreciate our work, the reality is, is especially when you're doing stuff that is not traditional or not typical, uh, the, the fact is not everybody is going to get it. Mm -hmm. And when you're putting yourself out there, it's nevertheless, even though, even though you have that understanding, right. nevertheless, it can be difficult to get rejected. Or So, you know, how do you sort of contend with that what's what's your process for being able to do that in your journey to find the people for whom your work is a good match in in some instances uh, i mean just to keep my cv presentable <laughs> i you know i i enter juried shows and there's there's always going to be it's an understanding you get into some you don't get into others mm -hmm. you know, who's who's the juror i mean that thinking and when I mean who's the juror, it's, it's what is their aesthetic. And so, sometimes I just go ahead and enter anyway. Um, you know, some of those things, although this is going off on a tangent, I'm skeptical because they seem like money-making ventures. Yes, these things cost money, so people should make some money to recover costs. But I think you have to look very carefully at what are you going to get in terms of exposure. And because if you get into a group exhibit, then you have to pay for, sh well, you know, the, the yeah. costs. I mean, I'm certain you know. I would say one year, perhaps it was only last, that's right, it was only last year I didn't get into a major competition which has two levels, like a, a screening level, and then I don't know, 200 go on, and then there's a final 50. And so many of my colleagues got in. <laughs> I was, whether I liked it or not, it was, I just, you know, went into this, oh my gosh, and it took me several months to, I think, recover whatever that is. I really, okay, you need to do this. But, um, and I, I think earlier in the year, well, at the end of last year, in response to a, a photography friend, I was talking about how I realized I'm somebody who's not a conceptual photographer. I'm not this, I'm not that. Mm -hmm. I'm not a street photographer, but I need to go out into the world to find what I want to make imagery of. And I had decided to go to China, to southwest China, and it helped turn things around because you're away from that. What can be the drone of, I've got to do this, got to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I think finding times to be at peace with yourself, even if it, for me it meant being in another country. So that's, 
Um, in terms of my process, it's, you know, sometimes it's just fine, you know, because understanding I trust my imagery and I know that sometimes it'll be selected, sometimes not. But the problem comes when it's something larger and you're wanting to push further and then you don't get in. It can be just soul destroying for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, besides, you know, the magazine articles that I write in the books and uh, I have not been active in sort of submitting my work to those those things my right. wife is always telling me you should you should you should right but you know i'm a tender heart let's just say <laughs> so <laughs> and 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 so it's i i completely i get that but under other circumstances i'm i'm i, I put my work out there uh, especially the stuff that i put on instagram because for me i'm constantly trying to challenge myself and i'm trying I'm trying to reach a certain kind of imagery. It's not, that's not an apt description, but I'm, I'm constantly trying to reach a new level of my photography. Yeah. So a lot of what I shoot on an everyday basis are basically just my exercises. Right, right. right. And, I, and I put it out there. And sometimes I get feedback about people being critical about the work and all that stuff. But for me, I don't care. Because for me, it's just like that, was, that isn't necessarily the end goal. That mm-hmm. singular photograph, it's what I'm striving to get to. So for me, um, I, I guess I never look at my work as finished enough that I would put it together to present as a package to someone. So I guess that's my um, my defense mechanism. But I am doing a, a show in Los Angeles at the end of the year, which will be the first time in a long time that I've Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, and I'm having to sort of get get past that because I'm going to have to select like 24 prints that are like definitive for this particular subject matter. Uh And uh, if I had any hair to lose, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that I'd lose it. But talk to me about, you know, when you choose to exhibit your work, because you've produced a a, a good body of work, but, you know, narrowing them down to a select number of images that are going to represent that effort that you may have spent months or years. What's, what's your process for making that final selection in it and doing it to a point where you feel like really confident about what, you, what you've created? Well, I think it oftentimes it involves other people. You, at the moment, although this is a relatively new critique group and they weren't involved with earlier black and white work, Um, that I'm listening to what other people have to say, which oftentimes can be there are too many voices. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because what I realized this year, in fact, after all this time, I'm trying to think about this more, is I like going out to find the image. You know, I love printing and then I'm exhausted, and there's still this whole other mm-hmm. <laughs> of, you know, as to your point, selecting, you know, how do you come up with the images? So part of uh, that is, has come typically from getting input from, from others, because even sequencing, it's, I, I haven't a clue 
how to and fortunately you know it's because if it's the gallery then they they have what they want to do within their space it's it's all i can say is it's it's tough because i've never spent enough time you know people will say especially one of the people in the critique group i belong to he's almost finished with a book being published and he was talking about you know you get to look at pairs of images mm. and how good that is but he just has the mindset of an editor of and it's like well let me have that yeah. <laughs> mindset because it's i might be able to create the image and it comes from a certain it's just natural what's not natural to me is how to put the images together how to sequence so it's dynamic because there there's one i don't know whether i'm well i have mentioned some names but you know there's there's one curator um and yastrab who's just brilliant at taking images and making something that's dynamic and you know i can look at what she's done but it's like <laughs> yeah yeah there are certain people who have a real gift for that right yeah and i don't that's that's something all i can do is to learn that does not come naturally that aspect does not come naturally to me and then there's always the issue which may be because i don't know whether people give you input to the show will give you input where everyone of course likes different pieces mm-hmm. and in fact recently i needed to submit five images to a plastic camera competition and i had narrowed it down to six <laughs> okay and i couldn't decide and it's it's newer work so there's always that trepidation of you know what if nothing's selected so i asked four people whose judgment i really respect it was a different image each time yeah <laughs> um and it was just amazing there just wasn't consensus because i th- think with that although this is somewhat going off tangent is with the different voices it could be damaging because people um and especially other photographers have definite opinions mm-hmm. um on things and learning how to say stay true to yourself but being open to what positive critique by that i mean yeah. you don't have to recently a colleague had her work was just torn apart by somebody and it's there are ways that even if a body of work doesn't speak to you you can find something mm-hmm. to talk about you know before i went to portfolio reviews i would hear about um especially old school photographers and i'll let you interpret that as you will mm-hmm. <laughs> they didn't the whole go was associated with women and there was 
several instances where people I knew who were plastic camera people ended up in tears because of the critique that they got. And yes, you could say it's a certain sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, but in one instance, as opposed to, I, I can't remember verbatim, but the reviewer, and I wasn't there, it was before I went to a review, the reviewer's approach was, well, women seem to make soft, dreamy imagery. And my thoughts at this point in time is, why wasn't that person thinking, wow, this is, this is something, a new direction? as opposed to it's not this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. It's one thing for, I guess, I'll call, our, I'll call both of us seasoned in, in, <laughs> in being able to contend with opinions like that and being able to sort of separate what they're saying and what our own intention and experiences. Right, and right. someone who's really sort of green with respect yes. to all that, because that can be completely devastating. Yeah, but the best that, you know, we can do, especially on this show, for people who have not gone through that process is just, you know, just be careful of who you share your work with. You know, I, no, I think that's, that's really... That's, you have to, even if you're part of a critique group, you really need to develop a trust that the individuals have your best interest mm -hmm. at heart and not that it's just somebody who has an opinion because it could be it's a very narrow opinion but I'm talking at a certain level I can't imagine you know if somebody's a beginner how then critique works because mm. uh, in one instance I mean early on there was somebody called um, Amy Potzig who's a, a photographer um, she used to be here in San Francisco, but is now, I know, Pennsylvania, but back east somewhere. Um, and she was so good at wherever the person was in that point of time, she had the ability to find something positive in that work. But later what I realized is that person has to understand that an image that worked as a beginner when they're further along might mm -hmm. not, you know, it was just part yeah. of the process. So, yeah, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's what I always think about. Be careful who you show your work to. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them <laughs> to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Wow. There's just there's, there's so many that come to mind. Then I, I, I think actually I'd recommend um, a Chinese photographer that I... I wasn't familiar with his work until um, I went to Photo Fair San Francisco mm -hmm. uh, earlier in the year. And this person's name is Hai Bo, so H-A-I, and then Bo, B-O. Okay. And the work that I saw was called The Southern. And I, th I think... Uh, it, his work spoke to me because it's so quiet 
um, much larger than 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 my my work but so that's the information did i put you that's, in the corner by saying that no no that's good that's good thank you <laughs> because yeah i i well the only thing i could afford was the catalog <laughs> <laughs> yes i have several of those on my shelf as well um so i said because that takes care of um, there are so many people that I could that I could recommend, or either say this person. Uh, I'm going to say that person instead. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Well, Jacqueline, <laughs> thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to uh, get a chance to talk to you properly. Well, and, thank uh, you. And to get to and know you. I hope I wasn't rambling, as I have. I do tend to go off on tangents and then come back. <laughs> Thanks to Jacqueline for spending time with us. To find out more about Jacqueline and her work, visit JacquelineWalters.com. And you can show your support of The Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes store. You may have just happened upon the show, but many others use iTunes to search for photo podcasts. It's hard to stand out among the dozens of shows that are out there. Your reviews can make the difference between a listener finding us or not. If you believe in the uniqueness of the show and think it's worthy of attention, take the time to write a short review today. It will make a big difference. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us to not only meet the cost of production for the show, but allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Brad Romano, Sunjay Vijanathan, and Wayne Osborne for their recent donations to the show. Thank you so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episode on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandorframe.com. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candor Frame.